you would, take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. Um, we have quite a task in front of us to cover the first 14 chapters of Exodus. I'm hoping that you brought a snack <laughs> or something. Uh, there should be a Bible, uh, if you need one, around you somewhere, a hard black bound, hardback Bible. And uh, Exodus chapter 6 is on page 48 of that Bible. Um, you will want to keep it open as once we read and pray, we're going to go back to Exodus 1 and we'll just we'll hit various places along the way through these chapters. So you'll want to have your Bible open for that. But we're continuing today with our journey from the garden to glory through the storyline of the Bible. And last week, we watched as God called Abraham to be the beginning of, of the plan for God to save and bless the world. And He would begin that by giving Abraham a son through his wife, Sarah. That son was Isaac, and Isaac had two boys, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob had twelve sons. One of those sons, Joseph, was sold into slavery by his brothers wound up in Egypt, falsely accused of attempted rape and forgotten in a prison, but not forgotten by God. Eventually, God raises him up to a position of power in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, the king. In time, famine comes and brings Joseph's brothers to Egypt to buy grain. Now, there's a whole series of twists and turns. They don't recognize Joseph at first, but eventually Joseph reveals himself to them, forgives them, and then brings his family to Egypt to save them, even as through his wisdom he is saving the entire nation of Egypt from famine. So, as it were, in Genesis, God brings His people to Egypt in order to save them. But here in Exodus, God will bring His people out of Egypt in order to save them. And we hear what God will do here in Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. Exodus 6, verse 2, this is what the Spirit of God says in His Word. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to, into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Our Father, this is your word. 
inspired by your Spirit, given that we might know you, understand who you are and what you have done. And we pray, God, by your Spirit that you will help us to see that today, that you will teach us, that you will correct us, that you will rebuke us, that you will encourage us, that you will train us in righteousness that we will hear Your Word as Your Word, not merely as words, not merely as a history lesson, but as words that point us to the God who created us, to the God who sent Jesus Christ to save us. Speak, O Lord, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you might recognize that in, in days when great suffering is happening, in the darkest days of your life and of my life, we instinctively want to pray. Even those who are not Christians feel the need to pray in their darkest days. And I wonder, how is it that you pray on those dark days, in days of suffering, in days of grief, in days of pain, especially if that suffering shows up with suitcases to stay in your guest bedroom and to never leave. How do you pray then? What confidence do you have as you pray? What confidence do I have as I pray in the days of suffering? Well, maybe your prayer sounds something like this. I won't have you turn there, but this is in Psalm 77, a prayer of a man named Asaph. He begins, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. But then he asks these questions in his prayer. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Those don't seem like unusual questions when life is falling apart. Does God, has God actually stopped loving me? Will, will He even keep His promises? Has, has He forgotten me? Has, has, has God forgotten how to be compassionate? In suffering, these are the kinds of things that we ask, but I wonder how we answer them. How do you answer these kinds of questions? because we don't find answers by looking in our present circumstances, do we? All we see there are question marks. We see uncertainty. We see darkness. We see pain. Well, over and over again in the Bible, people tend to look to the past when they're suffering. And one of the places they look over and over again is to the story of Exodus, to the story of God delivering His people out of slavery. 
And so what we're going to do this morning is remember that story and those pictures together. Just in four pictures. I want to give you four pictures that I think help us tell the story, remember the story of the Exodus. The first picture is of a baby in a basket in a river. It's a picture of a basket in the river. The story begins as the legacy of Joseph, the one who saved Egypt from famine, the one who saved his family from famine. Joseph's legacy is long forgotten. A new regime is in power, and Abraham's descendants are no longer guests in Egypt. They're now slaves, and they're suffering. So go back to chapter 1, and we're going to just start working our way. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them, with heavy burdens. Now, Pharaoh's move here is strategic. He does not want to lose his labor force. He wants the Israelites to be overcome and feel hopeless so that they stop having children. But things backfire on him, and the harder things get for the Israelites, the more they multiply. So, Pharaoh as the chapter goes on, increases their work, hoping to increase their bitterness. In fact, the way they treat them is said to be bitterly. They bitterly treat them. This is the way they want them to feel, is bitter. But he takes one final evil step as he institutes genocide, the killing of these little Israelite baby boys, verse 15 of chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, the midwives do not cooperate, so Basically, Pharaoh makes a decree to the whole nation to say, if you're an Egyptian citizen, this is what you need to do. Kill the boys. Verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It changes the way you go to the grocery store with your little baby, doesn't it? When someone could just snatch him out of your hands and run down to the river and toss him in. The Nile River was actually a sacred place in Egyptian thought. It it was crucial for their economic life. It, It boosted the production of their crops. The Nile was something that the Egyptians saw as giving life. And now, Pharaoh wants to use it in order to take life. Not unlike in our day where clinics and doctors are meant to give life and preserve life, but in the evil of our day to turn the tables, whether through abortion or euthanasia, to take life. 
And it's here on the bank of this river that's meant for evil that we find a basket with an Israelite baby boy in it alive. Moses should have died. But because of the courage of his mother, he lives. Chapter 2, verse 1, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife as a, as a Levite woman. Uh, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Can you see the basket sitting there? Can you hear the baby squirming, squalling a bit, wondering where mama is? This little Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter, grows up in Pharaoh's household, only one day to be the one to lead the Israelites out of Pharaoh's tyranny. Friends, this basket in this river is a reminder that God has not forgotten His people. He's not looking the other way. He hasn't misplaced the list of promises that He made to Abraham. Though some may see it that way, right? I mean, the cruelty of the taskmasters, the oppression of Pharaoh, the threat of death, all of it seems to add up to God being absent, even uncaring. The people cry, but they feel unheard. They groan, but they feel ignored. They pray, but they feel like their prayers are not going to be answered. And yet, hope is not lost. Look at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. There's the turning point. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God is going to act. He will not leave His people there in misery, in slavery. He will do it in His own way, he will do it in his own time, but those verses, unheard by the people at the prayer meeting down on earth, you understand, they didn't get some kind of assurance at their prayer meeting that, hey, God is about to act. All they know is they're crying and groaning and suffering, and nothing seems to be happening. I mean, consider your own suffering. Consider my suffering. Consider our pain as it drags on. It can leave you feeling like God is absent, maybe even uncaring. I mean, our cries feel unheard. Our groans feel ignored. Our prayers feel unanswered. But look at the picture of a basket in the river. God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't vacated His throne. He may seem silent, but He's not absent. He's there with His purposes in hand, with His plan in hand. We may not understand His delay, but we can trust Him. When we forget that, we need to look at the picture of the basket 
in the river. The second picture is of a burning bush in the desert. A burning bush in the desert. The boy in the basket grows up and one day he sees the Egyptian oppression for himself and he takes matters into his own hands, killing an Egyptian with a kind of vigilante justice. And he puts sand over the body hoping nobody will find out, but he finds out very soon that people found out. And then there's a price on his head. Pharaoh wants Moses dead. And so Moses runs away. He goes to Midian. And there he, he marries a girl, and he works for her father-in-law, and, and he stays there. And you know what? Maybe he'll just retire in Midian. But that's not what happens. God appears to Moses, interrupts his retirement plan, and reveals his redemption plan. This holy God that when you're near Him, you must remove your shoes, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, this God is going to save His people. Chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come. I mean, like up to that moment, Moses is probably thinking, that sounds like a great idea. You should go do something about this, God. This God is going to go. He's going to rescue them. This is great news. I don't know why I'm in on this news, but it's great news. And then comes verse 10. God keeps speaking. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out. Now, uh, we tend to idolize Moses, but if you're just reading the Bible from the beginning, Moses is a rather surprising choice for this role, isn't he? He already took matters into his own hands once. He killed a guy and then ran off. He's a runaway. Why would you send him back in there? But it's not just us who finds Moses surprising. Moses finds Moses surprising as well. Look at verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Then chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered God, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Chapter 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses is looking at the task, and he's looking at his resume, and he's saying, these things don't line up. I don't have the qualifications in order to be a redeemer or a leader of anybody. And do you know what? He's right. He's right. His resume is not good enough for this. But then chapter 3, verse 12, this was God's answer to him over and over again. But I will be with you. 
Moses, you need to stop looking to your resume to figure out how you're going to do this and start looking to me. That's what God says to him. God's presence and power will be the key to Moses' ministry, to his leadership. In a sense, God is saying to him what Jesus says to his disciples and to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's where Moses is, isn't it? He can't do anything. But it's with the promise of God's presence and God's help, Moses will go back to Egypt from this burning bush in the desert. Now, I can't help but point out that it seems that this burning bush, in one sense, reminds us that God uh, works in ways that we would never expect, doesn't He? He chooses people we would never choose. He uses people we would never use. He promotes people we would never promote which is in line with God's whole way of operating because in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, look in the mirror, guys. Consider your own calling. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many of you were strong. Not many of you were anything. You were nothing. But that's exactly who God goes after. God takes the nobodies because in taking the nobodies, God demonstrates He's somebody. So that's one of the things that we see as we watch this burning bush. But also, think of the call. Think of Moses here. He has to march into dangerous territory and face off with a treacherous enemy, full of doubts about himself, full of doubts about his strengths, full of doubts about his leadership. Humanly speaking, this is impossible. He cannot succeed in this mission. And yet, God sends him. Moses must walk into the uncertainty on the path that God gives by faith in God's promises. Not by faith in what he sees in the mirror. He can believe in himself all he wants. It ain't going to get him nowhere. He needs to hold on to God's promises. He doesn't need to look to the situation. He doesn't need to look to himself. He needs to look to God. And as we see that, we have to remember that the God who set Moses on that path is the God who has set you on your path right where you are right this very second. Now, none of us are on the path of redeeming an entire nation. And yet, Many of us would not choose the path that we are on right now. We would not say, oh, yeah, I'm up for that one. I got it. I got this covered. And yet this is exactly where God has you, walking into things you would never walk into on your own, a path marked by uncertain diagnoses, by a whole host of uncertainties, by a dark season in your parenthood, by difficulty in your friendships. It's a path maybe right now that feels where you're quite isolated from everyone around you. But whatever it is, this much you can know, God has placed you exactly where you are. And He wants you to walk that path exactly the same way that He wants Moses to walk His path. That is by faith in Him and in His Word. To walk by faith and not by sight. 
I mean, if you walk by sight, tell me the truth, how hopeless would you be? If you walked each day according to the circumstances around you, your hope would be like this. It'd be way up here, and then be way down here, and way up here. But it'd spend a lot more time way down here, wouldn't it? God wants you and me to walk by faith. By faith, not by sight. So picture one is a basket in the river. Picture two is a burning bush in the desert. Picture three is a bloody doorpost at midnight. Moses goes to Pharaoh with his brother Aaron by his side, and his message is simple. Let my people go. And the Lord tells Moses exactly what's going to happen. Go to turn forward to chapter 7. Look at verse 3. God says to, the Lord says to Moses, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And thus the chess match begins between God and Pharaoh. And over the next few chapters, God unleashes His power in plagues. The Nile turns to blood, then frogs, then gnats, then flies, then Egyptian livestock dies, then there are boils on people and on animals, then hail falls, then locusts swarm, then darkness descends. And for a while, Pharaoh's magicians seem to keep up. They can kind of imitate what's going on by their own demonic power. But as time goes on, they can't keep up because God's power is too much. And plague after plague after plague, God pounds away and away and away. And it should be chipping away at Egypt's confidence, but it doesn't. Pharaoh's heart grows harder and harder and harder. Now, a couple of times, Pharaoh is so overwhelmed that he's, he says he'll let them go, but his hard heart won't let him. And so comes the announcement of the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, chapter 11, verse 4. This is Moses speaking to Pharaoh. So Moses said, at least in the presence of Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
And all these your servants shall come down to me and, and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That seems unimaginable, doesn't it? After all that has happened in Egypt, after all of the destruction, after all of the pain, after all of the suffering coming from the hand of God, now God says there is going to be a suffering that surpasses all the other suffering, and there will be pain like no other pain, and there will be wailing like no other wailing. And Pharaoh says, eh. It may seem that that's hard to imagine, but is that not the world in which we live now? Where men and women don't want to talk about death, don't want to think about death, much less the fact that we must face God. And so here is Pharaoh not listening. And so God sends his judgment, but he makes a way of escape. For his people. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, the Lord tells Moses, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you, make, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Jump down to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land. Of Egypt. The only escape from the coming judgment is through the blood of sacrifice. Here's the thing death will visit every single home. The question is will it be the death of the child or the death of the lamb? But death will visit every home. And in grace, God provides a substitute to bring salvation from His judgment. That night in Egypt, there will only be two groups of people. Those who suffer under the weight of God's judgment and those who are saved through the blood of the Lamb. Now, these people would put the blood on their doorposts 
the doorposts and their lentils, and they would do it with faith, but it, it's not all the same kind of looking faith, right? One guy may put it on in great confidence, knowing exactly, you know, no questions asked. Another guy will put it on there because he believes, but he still has some lingering questions. It's not whether their faith is stable or shaky that actually matters in that moment. What matters is, do they have faith in the promise of God that the blood applied to the doorpost will save them? Now, that's encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you. Because God is not wondering, sitting up in heaven wondering what the quality of your faith is. Like when you feel shaky, you're on shaky ground with the Lord. When you have questions pop up that you're struggling to answer, well, you know, that's, that's not a good thing. The question isn't actually the quality of your faith. The question is the object of your faith. Are you believing in Him, in His provision for sin? You see, that salvation was just for that one night. But there is a salvation that is once and for all. It's found in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, sacrificed on the cross in our place. And when we trust in Him, we are forgiven of our sin and saved from judgment. And just like that terrible night in Exodus, on the last day there will only be two groups of humanity. There will be those who suffer under the weight of God's judgment forever, and there will be those who will be saved forever because the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven them of their sin. And my question for you this morning is, which group are you in? Which group are you in? You can't waffle back and forth here. You will either trust in Jesus or you will not. Well, I'm not really sure that judgment is going to happen. Or, you know what, my family's really religious, and that's been a good thing for me. I feel like that's probably given me some, some brownie points with God. Or I give a lot, or I'm a good husband, I'm a good father. Look, whatever else you may seek to try and rest your eternal hope on, it will be like shifting sand on the last day. It will be like that lightning quick sand in the princess bride. You will walk along thinking, I am going to be fine. And then, whew. But the good news is that Jesus Christ dove in to rescue you from that. And if you will cling to Him, He will pull you out. But if you will not, there is no other hope. You see, the blood on the doorpost reminds us that God has saved us from the worst thing we could ever face, His wrath. And if God has done that, no matter what we are enduring here and now, the blood on that doorpost, the blood on that cross, gives us hope. There's a basket in the river. There's a burning bush in the desert. There's a bloody doorpost at midnight. And then the last picture 
is a dry path through the sea. After the firstborn all die, the Egyptians are eager to get rid of the Israelites, but the Israelites aren't gone long before Pharaoh realizes that he's made a terrible mistake. Uh, chapter 14, the second half of verse 5, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea. So the Israelites are pinned. They've got the Red Sea on one side, and they've got the Egyptian army on the other side. And fear overwhelms the camp, and they're wondering if they came out just to die here. But Moses says to them in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That night, God keeps the Egyptians and the Israelites separated while Moses stands at the bank and stretches out his arm, his hand over the sea. And while he is doing that, God drives the waters back so that there's a wall on the right and a wall on the left, and the people walk through on dry ground. Now, the Egyptians go in after them. Verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Remnants of Pharaoh's army are floating in the sea and lying, lining the shore. And it is at that point, with that in the background, that Moses raises his hands and conducts the people in a song of triumph. God has triumphed over his enemies. The dry path through the sea speaks of God's victory. No matter the darkness or the enemies or the sufferings, God will see his people through. He will make sure that we get to the other side. He is the one who's done that. When all hope seems lost, when doubt seems to strangle faith, look at this picture 
of the dry path through the sea. This God is your God. Now, this picture is no guarantee that in this life you're going to come out on the other side shining and whistling. You may or you may not. But this picture is an assurance that at the end we will all come out of the sea. We will all get through there and we will all sing the song of victory in the presence of God. So that no matter what is happening now, no matter how dark it is now, I know the light of glory lies on the other side. Don't fall for the lie that the end of that path is in this life because it may not be. It wasn't for Jesus, was it? He was afflicted, he was tortured, and he died, and he was buried. But on the other side, he rose from the dead. God kept his promise. These four pictures tell the story of Exodus. The basket, the bush, the doorpost, the path. And it's all part of God's story from garden to glory, but this is more than just a story. This is more, these are more than just plot points on the Bible's big story. These are a source of hope and help. Let's go back to our friend Asaph who was praying. You remember he was praying? He was praying in his prayer closet and he was asking all kinds of questions. Has God stopped loving me? Will he keep his promises? Has he forgotten me? Has he forgotten how to be compassionate? And I asked how you would answer those questions. Well, you know what Asaph did? In a sense, he grabbed his iPhone and he scrolled through these pictures. He saw the picture of the basket in the river. God doesn't forget his people. He's compassionate. He sees the burning bush in the desert. Well, my path may be dark, but God has placed me here. And He'll keep His promises. I have to walk by faith and not by sight. He sees the blood on the doorpost at midnight. You know, the worst thing I can actually face is God's wrath, and I deserve it. But in love, He's shown me favor and saved me through sacrifice. He sees the dry path through the sea. God's brought me this far. He'll defeat all my enemies and bring me safely home. Now, how do I know that that's something like what Asaph did? Well, listen to the rest of his prayer, and you be the judge. Just after all those questions... Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among your peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. 
Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Asaph asks all the questions that we would ask, and he answers by looking at who God is and what God has done in rescuing His people. Dear friends, we have those same pictures in our phone. We have the same God that He did, but we have pictures He didn't have. We have a manger and a cross and an empty tomb. We have Jesus Christ, and Jesus far surpasses Moses. He was a surprising Savior to those who were around Him. I mean, like, this is a carpenter's son from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And yet He is sent by God to save us. He lives a life of perfect righteousness and then dies on the cross for our unrighteousness. And when we trust in Him, His blood is applied to the doorpost of our lives so that we can be saved. And he is buried, and on the third day he rises again. He gets up from the grave, conquering death itself. And as it were, the risen Christ stretches out his hand and divides the sea of God's judgment so that we can walk through on the dry ground of his grace. And because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, no matter the enemies that may pursue us, no matter the suffering that surrounds us, no matter the disease that plagues us, no matter the struggles that we can't shake, no matter the sin that keeps rearing its ugly head, we will make it to the other side. And the water of God's judgment will not fall on us. It will fall on all of that stuff on the sin, on the disease, on the suffering, on the enemies. We will be free to live in peace and joy and unbroken fellowship with God forever. So in our dark days, we pour out our hearts to God and we pull out these pictures, confident that the God who didn't forget them won't forget us. That the God who showed compassion to them will show compassion to us. The God who saved them will save us. The God who saw them through will see us through. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in your goodness, you had these things written down that we might be encouraged and strengthened to walk by faith and not by sight. God, I pray for those suffering even now, that they would look to these pictures of redemption and see who you are and see and believe that you have not changed. And that we don't have just pictures of the exodus. We have pictures of eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus has paid it all. 
that we might be saved and stand complete before you. Oh God, I pray for those who need to see this, whether it's in their suffering or whether they've never seen Jesus this way before. Oh God, rescue them. Give hope, give help, give salvation. In Jesus' name.